Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most influential artists in the world today, Barbara Kruger. Hailed for her distinctive red, white, green and black poster style language, Kruger's iconic work sees her merge text and image to bring attention to urgent political concerns. Bold, loud and readily available, her tabloid-esque works directly confront everyday issues we face in our world today and, evocative of advertising, have the ability to bring meaning to often meaningless signage. Born in Newark, New Jersey, and educated at Syracuse, then Parsons, where she was taught by the late great Diane Arbus, Kruger started out as an art director for Condé Nast, shaping her visual language as she has said, I had the luxury of working with the best technology. In laying out editorial content, I became attached to sans serif type, which I chose because they could really cut through the grease. Fast forward to the 1970s and 80s, a highly political moment in America, especially for the control over one's body, and Kruger is culminating works that reference Laura Mulvey's landmark 1975 essay on the male gaze, as well as demonstrations protesting anti-abortion laws. Her work has defined a new type of art that directly addresses power and control, championing the rights we should have over our bodies, life and world. Today, she is still at the forefront with her work, immersive and on the wall, that feels forever familiar due to its evocation of the machine we know as capitalism that both drives us and that we drive. For those lucky enough to be in London, Kruger is very excitingly having her first institutional show in London in over 20 years at the Serpentine Gallery, where she will be taking her work outside. And I can't wait to find out more. Barbara Kruger, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing really fine and 
still taken aback by all that praise. I've said many times before, I hope it doesn't sound uh, false humility, but I really never thought people would know my name or my work and the way histories are made and forgotten are always a mix of serendipity and uh, social circumstances. So um, I'm shocked and privileged that introduction was so huge and a bit overpraising, but I'll take it. I had to cut it. I mean, honestly, there is so much. I, I, I won't embarrass you, but yes, I meant every word. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like many others, I seem to have grown up with your work. It is ubiquitous, seeming to always be surrounding us, familiar to us and challenging us, whether it be notions of greatness, the roles of women, power and control. Your direct yet simple tools of using image and text is incredibly powerful because of its ability to point things out that are hiding in plain sight and effectively switch something we know so well on its head, making us see the world anew. So I want to start by asking you, why are you attracted to working in the graphic medium of merging text with image? Well, I think that really grew out of my experience working nine to five jobs. I went to school, but I did not graduate. So by the age of 19, I was out of school. I only went for a year and a half, oh, maybe almost two, year to Syracuse, year to Parsons, and had to get jobs. And I really wasn't trained as a graphic designer, but I got these little paste-up jobs in places and worked for very obscure little magazines and then got hired at Condé Nast, not as an art director. I was a graphic designer there. I never headed the art department, but I started doing what was called back-of-the-book paste-ups, which were small amidst the ads at the back of magazines and graduated to doing front-of-book editorial pieces. And I learned how to work with pictures and words. It was sort of an organic understanding of how those elements came together to make an image. And what do you think is the power of fusing an image and text together that usually have nothing in common? You know, it's funny because when I started, I would, as a pasta person, work in the art department and take these photos and put dummy type over them, A, B, C, D, and the copywriters would write to the copy that was allotted in my paste up. So I think in many ways, my work was substitutional and systemic in terms of its critique, because my work became putting my own words in that space. And, you know, critical in that fashion magazines, I always felt like a Martian there. I mean, I was never able to buy expensive clothes. So it was just like a person who fell to earth amidst the halls of Condé Nast. That was true of many people who worked in the art department. And I'm fascinated, so many of your installations are on this immersive scale. In a way, they they mirror the information, text and images that we inhale through our electrical devices, both all consuming as well as kind of constantly watching us. I mean, what impact do you want to create when you create these immersive installations? You know, when I worked at magazines, you wanted people to look at the page. And if they turned the page real quick and didn't look, you weren't being affected. Your meaning that you were making was not being conveyed. It didn't meet other eyes. So what was important to me was to find out ways that I can engage space. And architecture was always my first love even though I could never become an architect, but how to engage space, how to spatialize my work, which previously had been totally 2D, was an incredible challenge and opportunity. And of course, you know, in the beginning, I didn't have the ability to engage these spaces. It's just when I became 
a big shot for 20 minutes, which is the way all this rolls out, you know, all this canonicity that I'm experiencing is temporal. I mean, who knows, you know, people are forgotten too. I take all of this with much pleasure and a grain of salt. So it's great that I could work in spaces and use type and use images to address the viewers and myself in ways that suggest other meanings and doubt and contradictions and conflict and pleasure. Yeah, I know you've been dealing with this kind of text and image format for decades, but there's something about that actually just speaks to the sort of 21st century consumer in a way that it sort of mirrors what we are sort of experiencing on a daily basis with the sort of proliferation of images and information coming at us the whole time. Do you think about how much it corresponds to the world in which we live today? I think that my work, as many other artists' work, are always a reflection to some degree of the world that constructs and contains us. Our experiences daily color the way we think and the way we perceive the world and how we're perceived by the world. And of course, now everything is so intense. And of course, the internet has changed everything and social media has changed everything and everything's been so accelerated. So the way things come at you is very disturbing, can be both liberating and punishing and everything in between. I guess you use this language that is so familiar to us, but you have this incredible ability to turn it on its head. No matter sort of when it was made, if it was made 30 years ago or 40 years ago, there's something about the kind of timelessness of text that will never fade. Well, thank you. But because I have no real art school education and I never really crashed the codes of what art meant. You know, I remember going to galleries when I was quite young and feeling weird being there. I always felt like every time I entered a gallery, I had to have a lint brush with me, you know, never perfect enough or whatever, you know, again, class bound issues and race bound issues too, in many ways. I always felt in many ways outside of the language. I hadn't crashed the code. I didn't quote, get it, unquote. And I can relate to many people who feel marginalized by the discourses of contemporary art in many ways. But since I have crashed certain codes, I have learned that there are so many different ways of making art and so many different considerations that different ways of making art ask for, different time considerations. And I respect so many different ways of working, you know. But for me, I guess I make art to meet eyes of those who get it on the level that I got it. Yeah, I think what, what you just said was absolutely incredible. In, in a way, your work completely addresses this idea of power and control. I mean, I'd love to go back to your beginnings. You were born in 1945 in Newark, New Jersey, the only child. And you thought that you might be an illustrator, but I'm aware that you actually learned to touch type. I'm fascinated by how you came to art. I mean, if you attended museums, I mean, was it present in your life at all? I mean, one time my parents took me to MoMA. One time we went into New York. You know, Newark, New Jersey is close, but a world away from New York City. Uh, what I remember is two things. I think it was the Balthus stair painting because it was on the stairway and the design collection and the architecture. That's what I remember because architecture was always, I don't know, we lived in a three-room apartment in Newark, New Jersey. And all I ever wanted was my own room that I barely ever had. But it did fuel a desire around issues of space, identity through space. Well, you know, I looked in the newspapers and at that time, the Newark News 
We're full of ads for department stores with drawings. Fashion illustration is what really ruled the roost. It wasn't photography. And I looked at all those drawings. There was a time many years ago when the one thing that defined an artist was whether you could draw or not. Now, thank goodness, the possibilities of who gets called an artist have transcended that. But I was one of those people who could draw. So fashion illustration kind of interested me on that level. But after a foundation year at Syracuse, which was pretty useless, that was one year. And then my second year at Parsons, which was much more productive, but I had to leave. We just didn't have any money and I had to get a job. So Parsons really steered me more in the direction of magazine work. And you studied under Deanne Arbus at this time. Deanne and Marvin Israel, who was a very important designer. He was incredibly important to Deanne for obvious reasons. She loved him, but to many other art directors and photographers and the models who loved him and the students who loved him. He was a very compelling figure. And that was very important to me. And Deanne, I didn't know her full history at a time. We did have a kind of friendship. I liked her, felt comfortable with her, but never felt comfortable with her work, even as a young woman. What did they both teach you? Marvin Israel, actually, I thought of him a lot in the later teaching work that I did, in terms of the power that you could have as an instructor to really strike a match in someone, to suggest a kind of level of self-esteem to them that they might have never had before. But I also learned, counter to that, to also be aware of the hierarchy in the classroom and to never abuse that. And obviously you shifted from this love of drawing and, and fashion illustration to photography. I mean, it was such a interesting time in the world in terms of the 60s and this this huge shift in terms of advertising. What inspired you to sort of take that leap to photography or was it also what was surrounding you that was kind of paving the way for that direction? When I first started working for magazines, I started doing little freelance illustrations in the back pages of Seventeen and Mademoiselle of socks and shoes and, you know, done in magic marker and stuff like that. But then to get hired as a full-time job there, it was like a third-level designer. That's when I started working with photography with somebody else's photographs. But, you know, there was a photo lab in the building and you could order as many sizes as you wanted, which was easy to take for granted because if you're doing it on your own, it would cost a fortune. And do you think you turned that experience into your subject? Oh, well, there's no doubt that my work as a designer morphed with big differences, but morphed into my work as an artist. And it was through the familiarity with working with photography and putting type around it that really developed as a methodology for me. I mean, I'm interested in this idea of the sort of power of familiarity and sort of using these images that look familiar to us. Like I said at the beginning, you know, I really feel like I've grown up with your work in a sort of strange way. I, I know it so distinctively. What do you think is the power of familiarity to sort of grab someone's attention? I don't know about familiarity so much as just photography itself was so translatable, but the translation was always complicated because it has an apparent visual address, but the meaning varies from spectator to spectator in many ways. 
I think adding text also adds something else to the recipe. But again, all this grew very organically. It wasn't out of, uh, you know, certain tropes of conceptual art. It was really about my experience at magazines. And was it that also because you have this incredible direct language in terms of using pronouns such as you or I? I mean, what was it about actually talking to your viewer or talking to their spectator? Oh, yeah. I mean, direct address has been the motor of my work. And it comes out of magazine work. It also comes out of television, you know, that TV was, you know, a very important informant of visual culture when I was coming up. Still lives to a degree, but has supplanted in large part by our online lives, obviously. But even online, the amount of direct address is huge. Social media is totally almost direct address, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, but especially TikTok, you know. So what we're seeing now with digital media, and I again, I've said this before, but I it bears repeating, we're seeing this, you know, slow motion car crash of voyeurism and narcissism. My mind's kind of being blown here because I'm so fascinated by the way that you've just made this incredible distinction between the way that advertising in the 60s kind of direct or, or the, the language that you use, that direct language, and the way that people engage with their faces on TikTok. Yeah, and speaking and performing for the viewer, you know. I mean, there is no third party that they're looking at. They're looking at the camera. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And one of my favorite works of yours is Untitled Your Gaze Hits the Side of My Face from 1981. This was such an interesting time in the world. 1981, it's been the feminist movement. Laura Mulvey's written this landmark essay about the male gaze. I mean, in Your Gaze Hits the Side of My Face, which is of this kind of classical profile of a classical sculpture with your text, I mean, what effect did you want to create with that? You know, I really can't spell it out and be literal on that level. Obviously, it had some effect on you, and I'm glad. But yeah, it was... I hope that the meanings that are ferreted out are much more incremental from person to person. I mean, did you feel like through art you had some kind of, not necessarily responsibility, but I guess an intention to talk about these particularly vital issues? I mean, you know, for me, when I look at your gaze hits the side of my face, it very much speaks to me about spectator and, and male and female and control and idealizations of beauty, which come into the kind of power and control over women. Of course, those were issues, especially coming from fashion magazines. One was aware of that, but of course, I was aware of that long before just by being a woman. And at that time, remember being a young woman walking down the streets of New York, you couldn't walk past a construction site without being, you know, hounded and followed. And, you know, it was insane. You know, it was a very public demonstrations of hostility perched beneath the mantle of desire from men, you know. Yeah. Was there a part of you that wanted to input images in the world that also showed us a different side of something? Well, of course, I, I had a critical relationship to power and politics and gender and issues of marginality and was aware of issues of race that really dictated the feel of our lives. And I wanted to create a commentary about that really it was very fortunate that my experience of organically developing, working with pictures and words really created a very opportune arena to address the world and 
to create commentary around it. I should say my earlier work, whatever, because I never really was a student very long. You know, the painterly work, the weaving work, that was really student work on a certain level. I that took me a while to figure out what it meant to call myself an artist. You know, it's different today. Everyone goes to MFA program, not everyone, but and nor do I think it's necessary, but, you know, they go to programs and you pick from column A, column B, you know, what style, whatever, whatever. It was not like that. When I was coming up, there were like 12 white guys in lower Manhattan that constituted the art world. Sure, there were women and people of color working everywhere, but they didn't count in the way that they should have. So it was easy to feel really marginalized. And being an artist was not an easy thing to call yourself. And I didn't even know what it meant. So I hadn't been educated in the stylistics or the historical underlinings of certain practices. I knew nothing of that. What I knew was a visuality that I learned and earned as a graphic designer. But I think in a way, this idea of having a proper education or whatever that means, life experience and looking is education to me. Well, of course, that's true. But as you well know, I mean, I'm in L.A. and I taught at UCLA for 17 years and a bit at CalArts. And and of course, it was always weird to me because I never had that experience as a young person. I totally think it's great to have that experience. What's not great is to incur so much debt, which can saddle you for life. But the other thing is also you develop a network of friends, Team UCLA or, you know, Team CalArts or Team whatever. And it makes it easier to navigate through a very complex and at times not benevolent system of recognition and marginality. You know, so that's what schools are for. But man, that's a lot of tuition to pay for that. But nevertheless, being a teacher has been part of an artist's MO. It's part of their job description. Because again, it's no longer 12 white guys in lower Manhattan. There are so many more people who are able to call themselves an artist and conjure up the self-esteem needed to make your work and feel that it has value. Well, I think it's also partly thanks to our predecessors and the people who's shoulders we stand on who also make it possible for us. You know, even 10 years ago when I was at university, I didn't really study any woman artist or anything. And so for me, there was also this kind of question to myself about where do I fit into this art world if I don't see myself represented? Yeah, that's why historical resets are so important. Yeah, there were very few women. There were also, you know, in older curriculums, there were no artists of color. And what we see now is this huge historical reset, which opens the field, not only in terms of showing in galleries, but of course, in curatorial work and hopefully directorship of institutions and also the market. But the market has its cynical and, you know, ways of working. But nevertheless, it's so important to see a broader representation of different subjectivities and ways of working and thinking. Totally. I mean, I'm so fascinated by this exhibition that you organised in 1988 at MoMA called Picturing Greatness, which was a collection of portraits of famous artists, uh, all of them white and all of them male. Can you talk to me about this as well, this idea of picturing greatness and what you wanted to do with it? Thank you for bringing that up, Katie. That show meant a lot to me. It's amazing it was at MoMA because I've been pretty much invisible there for 40 years, except for last year. They own one work of mine they bought in 1981 for $2,500, just saying. And I want it to stay that way now. 
because I managed to claw my way into 20 minutes of canonicity without the support of the Museum of Modern Art. And I am proud of that. But nevertheless, I think it was Susan Kismarek invited me to curate an exhibition. And I wanted to construct some kind of critique of the notion of artistic greatness, but also engage the notions of photography and its powers. So I went through the collection and found these works. And it was interesting how stereotype works through photography, the seriousness of the artist, the stance, the picturing of the studio, all those expectations lived through bodies. And I wrote a text that accompanied it. And in my exhibition, last year that opened at the Art Institute of Chicago, I redid that work and went through their collection of photography and did the same exhibition, but changed the text because there had been more women and people of color. And then when it went to LACMA, I went through their collection. So the room looked pretty much the same, a slightly different text, but with different photographs of artists. And I, of course, had planned to do it at MoMA too before they canceled my show there. So it seems to me that it's changed a lot, but it speaks today of gatekeepers and the power of institutions and curatorial control, but how that's loosening also. I think the idea of greatness and what is greatness is one of the most pressing, interesting questions of today, because in a way we've been led to believe it's one thing, but actually I believe that the institutions have skewed our ideas of what greatness is and almost sort of put in this sort of set of hierarchies for us to conform. And actually it's about breaking away from those and opening everything up. Well, I think it's not just the institutions. It's sort of a compendium of how histories are written, not just art histories, but, you know, literary history and the great male diplomatic history. I mean, what constitutes greatness? What is that thing? This is not to devalue extraordinary abilities, skills, intelligence, whatever, but to just talk about the inflationary rhetoric that really works to make some moments, some people visible and others not. Completely. And I just think, you know, this idea of still life or portraiture or textiles or embroidery, you know, artworks that were sort of dismissed as not great in the past and actually charging them with greatness as well, because I think that it's always sort of belonged to one category of art and one demographic of society, which needs to be challenged always. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because when people do finally become visible and their work finally becomes apparent and its skill recognized, it's very easy for people to adopt that mantle of greatness themselves. Oh yeah, I'm great. I think it's important for certain artists, not everybody, everyone lives their lives the way they want, but as you become visible and you get your 20 minutes of, you know, iconicity or canonicity, that how many people believe all this inflation about themselves and about their work? I mean, there are plenty of people making extraordinary work that we will not know about. And so much of it has to do with the fickleness of the market and the cruel brutalities of what becomes known and what doesn't and why that happens. So I always bear that in mind. And I never take anything for granted. This show at the Serpentine, you're wanting to speak to me today. You know, I still am so appreciative of that recognition because I, for so long, never thought it would happen. 
And I don't think it happens because of my extraordinary. Yeah, I've worked hard and I I try to make work that I think creates the kind of commentary that I want to make, both visually and textually. But there are also so many things at play in the backstory that make some of us more fortunate than others. And I will never forget that privilege, even though it came a bit late in life for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to praise it, you know, so much, but I think it's when work has the ability to move people. Personally, that's what I think is extraordinary, when you feel that, you know, you can go back to it and it can speak to you on so many different levels. Thinking about a work of yours such as Untitled Your Body is a Battleground from 1989. I mean, the way that that's spoken to the world on such a vital level, I think, as well. I feel very um, conscious about praising you, I'm sorry. But just this idea that a work can speak to so many different people, no matter what demographic they're from. And when you feel the loss of control of your body, the way that it just directly addresses it, does make people feel seen. Yeah, I think that that might have been the case. But I have to remind you that I was not 21 when this all happened. You know, I worked for magazines. I felt very much left out of the gallery world for a good decade or more. Even when I started showing my work, they were selling out, but I was making $200 on each one. I paid for the frame early on, you know, paid to make the print. The work sold for $1,200. I made like maybe $250. And you see what's happening. I don't like auction houses. So you're seeing what's happening at auctions. But I don't feel victimized by that because this is the brutality of the market, the brutality of the system that we're in. Buy low, sell high. This is what happens, you know. So I'm aware, but that 2D work was a first step. The second step was doing my postings through the city, which with the help of my students at the ISP, then when I started spatializing my work, that was a third breakthrough for me of being able to make these big silk screens done in a lab in Mississauga, Canada, the largest silk screen bed in North America that was put out of business when they could no longer have tobacco ads. And then the coming of digital and working upscale digitally, and then starting to work with moving images almost 17 years ago now, working with video and film and Masonicness, which really changed my work to an amazing degree. But I just see the work as sort of stages that have changed and morphed into other ways of addressing viewers. I mean, it must also be interesting, you know, something like Your Body is a Battleground starting out as literally a poster, which transformed into an artwork that's now being transformed into something that people consume on a digital screen as well. The sort of transition from poster to artwork is so interesting. Yeah, and to really take advantage of the developments. I remember when I was making vinyl works on silkscreen and they were so sharp and beautiful. And then silkscreen became archaic and the first digital works were horrible. I mean, the pixels were huge and I I just couldn't deal with it. And how works on video change, whether you were working with cassettes and then you're working with laser discs and then you're working with CDs and then you're working with hard drives. It's just so interesting to see how meaning is made, how different has become, and in some chilling ways, how it stayed the same. Yeah, I mean, this idea of working with control and power and the body, you were obviously dealing with this subject in the 1980s. What was the reaction to it then? And did you think that it would be so relevant for our life in 2020s? 
bodies are relevant. Bodies are relevant because it's how we speak and breathe through them and how we live our lives. And the control over them has been a global contestation for centuries and centuries and centuries. It always shocks me. I remember maybe, oh, a few years ago when whatever was going on in the world and I had some young people say to me, journalists, I don't think we've ever lived through a time like this before. And I'm thinking, hey, listen, I'm not a historian, right? But I know that the way people have been subjugated and murdered and destroyed is centuries old. It's just that we have different ways of finding out now. That knowledge comes to us with great simultaneity and with it comes uh, burdens and responsibilities. What I find so interesting is the kind of evolution of visual imagery, especially when we think about bodies, basically anyone who's not a white man, in terms of the way that bodies have been exploited through European painting and then advertising. And I wonder if how much you think visual culture has on the way that we treat people in society because of the way that it prioritizes certain groups over the other. Of course, in terms of painting, yes, of course, it's had an influence. But how many people grew up looking at paintings? I mean, I sure didn't. I mean, how many people are educated in the sort of uh, ins and outs of the careers of 16th and 17th century painters? And, you know, I mean, for people who are educated in that, they can understand that. I think it certainly had a role in in the church's role in the depiction of bodies, uh, because it was through religious painting that we saw the place of the bodies, its pleasures and perpetual punishments. And that became a popular art because of the way it was, you know, spatialized in churches, the way it was muralized and the way it was painted on canvas. But that was a popular art. I'm talking about church art because religion was a popular exercise, a popular punishment, a popular delivery mechanism out of life into heaven or hell. So people listened and watched that. But I I know more about the understanding of that as it engaged architecturally than I do in the histories of painting. Yeah, I guess it's just so interesting the way that, I mean, I know that obviously not everyone grows up looking at painting or anything, but I do think that there is some correlation between the way that women have been displayed in painting and the way... Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And and especially, again, in religious painting, too. Mm. But uh, yes, of course, that's true. I mean, the, the place of women's bodies in painting, and of course, photography, just up the ante, and the internet up the ante to a huge degree. But it's much more complex now, because... What could be seen as exploitative has now become self-display. And again, we have that narcissism and voyeurism meeting each other. Will we ever be able to live a life that's not through a lens or at the other side of a lens? How do we exist without a camera pointing at us or without us looking at an image captured on a camera? So all these questions about bodies and whether they're exploited or whether not, or one's taking control, one's own agency over one's own body, all these issues are multiplied in their meanings now. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite works of yours in the last couple of decades is Untitled, That's the Way We Do It, which is this extraordinary collage. I mean, can you talk a bit about this work? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. 
you know, you become aware of how certain aspects of my work, believe it or not, you know, have become viral and have become a stylistic that people use, entertain, work with online. So what I started to do, this was about eight years ago, I was aware online, either on Google Images or Tumblr or all these things that no longer exist now, of um, how images have another life online. So I collected hundreds and hundreds, every year it's more, probably a thousand images based on certain aspects of my own work and incorporated that. And many of those people copyright them. So it's sort of funny and interesting. And I incorporate them into this one large installation, which I have cited in the room with the LED animation of I Shop Therefore I Am. And it always changes because for every venue I do this in, there are more images and I have to rescale the work to engage the space. So it's always like looking online and looking for these things again, you know. Do you find that sometimes people actually flip the meaning of your work when they sort of appropriate it? Oh, of course, many times. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I have no control over that and I don't sue people or anything like that. It's sort of both pleasing and amazing to me that this worked out the way it did. I feel like pinch me because I'm not sitting here with a room. I'm not saying this is the way to work, but I really don't have a cadre of assistants or a big studio space or, you know, I work very much with a few fabricators and people who've been instrumental for years, but I'm pretty much on my own here. So it's just amazing to see how the work has this reach, you know. And so you're coming to the Serpentine, your first institutional show in London in over 20 years. You were last here at South London Gallery in 2001. This exhibition is called Thinking of You, I Mean Me, I Mean You. Tell us about this and, and what you're going to do here. It's so weird because the show at South London feels, it feels like 20 minutes ago on a certain <laughs> level. And it was the first time that I had shown a video work a multi-channel video. I look forward to it. Also, I had my first show at the ICA and I believe 82, and that was thrilling to me. And the ICA was just, oh my God, their public programs at that cafe. It was just the coolest place in the world. It was so scary for me, but it was so cool, you know? And I would always come to London and look forward to shows there. Your press is daunting. I'm sure I will get a negative obituary in London. But I just you come to accept it. And I'm so happy to be at the Serpentine. I had done an installation there many years ago when the opening was still, the entrance was on the other side where I now will have black and white text installation. And I, I'm just thrilled about it. I'm happy, a, a little anxious. I hate events. I am not good at openings. I don't do dinners. But I love the everydayness of making work, of installing it and having so many wonderful people help me do the installation. None of my work could happen without them. I, I never usually ask this, but what advice would you give to young artists today? You know, listen, I, I taught for many years and I love teaching at UCLA because it's a great public university and not a private art school. And uh, many of my students were first generation to go to college as I was first generation to speak English. It was an art department. It was not an art school. So many of the students were majoring in, you know, sociology or history or mathematics or medicine. I think that 
the most that I could say is I remember when I first got there, there were these open studios and I was sort of appalled at first because it meant that people had to become public in their work for a short time. And, but that was sort of a creature of the market, but we taught hopefully that whether you become a pumped up commodity in 20 minutes or you stay true to what you're doing and try to make the best work you can make, regardless of the fickleness and craziness of the market system around you, most artists will never be part of that market system, that one should stay clear and not let it torture you. Um, Some of my colleagues when I were teaching there are such wonderful artists, and we all had a very critical relationship to the building of careers, you know, and how they happen. And uh, that's the most that I could say, that don't personalize everything, because when things happen really soon, and then you're abandoned, you have like, you know, 30 years of uh, performance anxiety to go through, you know, because uh, you just can't personalize it. The market is just brutal, and you have to make your work and make it as strong as possible, and not destroy yourself with comparisons to your peers. I mean, I, I don't know if it's still going to be on, I hope so, but there's a fantastic Nicole Eisenman show at the uh, oh. temple right now and this fantastic painting called Dear Obscurity. You just feel it. It's an extraordinary show. and She's fantastic. such an incredible artist, the paintings, yes, and the sculpture, oh my God. Yeah, she's really extraordinary. But I was like, every art student should go and just look at this painting because she had the success because critics thought something that she did or the way that she presented herself was deemed worthy. And then she got the letter, which was Dear Obscurity. And she was somehow obscure and she had to build that up again. And actually her work became so much more interesting because it was about, you know, staying true to herself and and documenting her experiences for how it was. Yeah, that's so important to remember. I mean, the main thrust was my belief in public education in this country and how it's being destroyed right now, how it's being destroyed by book burnings and parents' rights groups dictating what can be taught in classrooms. I mean, I can't even go into it, but we are headed in a very bad place. And I'm not shocked at anything. Whenever I hear people say they're shocked, I think your failure of imagination is why we are where we're at. Please don't be shocked. And I'm not saying that with any glee at all. We can all just do what we can in our own capacity to make the world somehow a better place. I mean, it's partly why I do this podcast, you know, making sure that anyone can access it. So it's like this free education. I'm exactly the same as you in the sense that what I want is for there to be more people in the conversation of art history. And there might be someone who has never even stepped inside a museum in their life, but I don't care, but they might listen to a podcast and it might change their life and go to their local library. And I don't know. That's so totally true, Katie. And your work through the podcast, but also through your writing, you know, have really shown light on the difficulties of hierarchies and visibility and and invisibility and practices that, you know, should have been known, would have been known, could have been known, you know, are known, you know, I mean, yeah, it's been ignored. And thank you. Barbara, thank you so much for coming on. I've got one more question. On the podcast, we do always ask if you could meet a woman artist from history or now, who would it be? And what would you say to her? I'm not interested in, um, it doesn't work for me. I can appreciate work from afar. I don't like a cult of, I would hate a cult of Barbara, but there are cults of many artists whose work I really admire and they dig it, some of them, you know, but I can't 
you know, there's a big difference between a figure and a body. And I'm just this body. I'm not being disingenuous, but you become something so bigger than you are. I don't have to meet anybody in person. I can appreciate their work. I'm lucky for 20 minutes that I have this name recognition. Who knows what history does? We become footnotes. We become forgotten. We become, you know, it's all so complicated, you know. Yeah. I mean, the best thing we can do is try to honor those who came before us and make sure those stories are heard. We had Helton Owls on the other day and he spoke about how when he was a kid, he used to write people's names on the back of photographs so they would be remembered. Wow. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm so happy the show is coming up. And I know there are things I've forgotten that I would have liked to have said, but whatever. Thank Thank you you so much, Barbara Kruger. It's really an honor to speak to you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Barbara Kruger. I am just in awe of everything she said and urge anyone who is in London over the next few months to see her exhibition at the Serpentine Gallery, which is open from the 1st of February 2024. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Menelic and this is the final episode in the season. So we'll see you in a few months for the next season of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 